Want more mindfulness exercises, wind downs, and sleep content for kids? Download Headspace today. People share stories about their dreams all the time, and they can be pretty boring. Like, last night I had a dream. I, like, came to, like, a blockbuster video, and it was closed. And I was reading a book today, and it was, like, they were at a closed uh, video store. And, and it's such a small thing. I would never mm. share that with anyone. But I was like, oh, I wonder what what caused these two things to connect. But this dream was, like... Yeah, it's like the most extreme version of that kind of dream that makes you think about the meaning, even though you can't figure it out, right? You're like, there must be some meaning if this happened, right? My friend Gazelle, she has an understanding of the world that feels under the surface to me. She believes in lucky numbers. She trusts her instincts on various matters. She'll get this look in her eye that just says, I know this, okay? And she moves ahead, and very often, her sense of how reality will shake out, well, it seems to, in the way she foresaw. I'm friends with her partly because I recognize that look, that way of doing things. I associate it with people I know, people in my family, my grandmother, who measured spices and pinches, my dad, who says he dreamed my aunt was pregnant, and just a few hours later, a call came from India announcing the news. I myself lack total confidence in my ability to toggle between worlds, between visible and invisible planes, but I do feel I've got a foot in the doorway. It started after my mom died. She began appearing in my dreams, and it really felt like it was her, as if somehow I was able to meet my dead mom while I slept. And then, as I changed in certain ways, I saw her change in the dreams. As I got happier, she got happier. As I smiled more, so did she. I should say that I'm that person at this point in my life. I always turn the conversation toward death. And no one likes that person, except other sickos like me. Which is why I sent an email out to friends to try to find stories about dreams that might make sense of why we have them. Stories other than my own. But... I don't know, maybe I can't fight fate. Because the story that arrived, the loud, compelling one, it's also about a death. It's like been a game of telephone almost of like, <laughs> get, like get, I had the details wrong. That's Gazelle again, the friend I mentioned. We're talking about a dream Gazelle's great aunt had. She texted me about it after I sent out my email, called it a famous story in her family, But the thing about families is they're made up of members who don't always see things the same way. Well, so when Gazelle told me about what you're doing, uh, first thing that struck me is that that this story of this dream clearly impressed itself upon her in a way that it didn't on me growing up. And so I'm aware of the story, but I don't think I would have, if you had texted me that, I wouldn't have been like, oh, my great aunt had this dream and this happened. Meet Solmaz, Gazelle's older sister, who doesn't share the same relationship to the story at all, who wouldn't have remembered it if I'd asked her for a good dream story. The question of why Gazelle holds it in starker regard than Solmaz, it starts to get interesting when you consider the nature of the dream. 
of the story. It stars a woman the sisters have never met, but who was close to their mom, Nahid. Nahid's aunt, Parvana. Very interesting story is about my aunt, like 37 years ago. She uh, decided to go to north of Iran, and then that night she slept, and the day after she was going to go, and she sees in the dream, like, uh, Israel, Israel, I don't know, in English, yeah. That's Nahid, and she's referencing Azrael, the angel of death in Islamic belief. To recap, it's Nahid's aunt Parvana we're talking about, living in the place now known as Iran nearly 40 years ago, and she has this dream. She's in her late 30s at the time, with a husband and daughter, and she's about to go on this trip up north, this trip she just really wants to go on. But then she goes to sleep, and who shows up but Azrael, angel of death. And uh, comes to her dream and says, on the way back, 20 miles to Tehran, I'm going to take your life. And she gets up in the middle of the sleep. She wakes up and she feels so bad. But then she says, no, this is just a dream that I had. But in the morning, she goes to some relative to see them and say goodbye that I'm going to go to North. And and she take, talks about her dream and laugh. And she said, if anybody else were instead of me, wouldn't go to on trip. But I'm going to go and I'm going to have fun. So this Azrael stuff, it's new to me. To Gazelle, too, when Nahid mentions it. Gazelle had texted me that her great-aunt had a dream before going on a road trip, and in the dream, a tire popped off her car, and in the dream, she died. Not a word about an angel, which is what she told her mom. What I remembered from when you told me this story when I was younger, maybe I misremembered it, but I remembered her dreaming that it was exactly the same thing where the tire pops off and he told... No, no, Israel doesn't. No, Israel doesn't tell about tire or what, how you're gonna go. It's (laughs) gonna say, "I'm gonna take your life," or trying to tell her mom. So her mom seems to think Gazelle thought Azrael mentioned the tire when Gazelle hadn't known about Azrael at all. She just thought the dream was about a tire. But so far, no tire has been brought up, and Gazelle is just getting chided. And this is one of the problems with family, right? With dreams. With trying to explain incredibly complicated things to each other? Maybe this seems like a meaningless issue to get hung up on when you're talking about a story with an angel of death in it, but the tire detail, it bothered me even when Gazelle texted it to me. There's something cartoonish about it. Even the phrase popped off. It just sounds like the sort of detail that's too neat, that makes you suspect some gaps have been filled in by the imagination. I mean, I actually don't remember the part about the tire and that it being so specifically that. That's, that. Actually, that's a funny little detail because it's not, that's not what your mom remembers. That, that Gazelle kind of <laughs> made that detail up, <laughs> which I thought was very tell. It's like, it, it turns it into a, a more extreme story. It in, does. In way, right? I would, I would think of it a little differently with that tire detail. <laughs> right. So here I am making fun of Gazelle. 
getting hung up on tires when there are angels in the picture, casting my friend as the imaginative little sister who probably made up a detail, exploiting a dynamic that's easy to exploit, because Gazelle is forever a baby to her family. Apparently, Solmaz once dreamed she split her pants, or so Gazelle also told me, and the next day at school, Solmaz did indeed split her pants. Yet this story, Solmaz didn't remember it either. But she had a theory as to why Gazelle did. I think it's really adorable, and I don't know what why, but I think it's because she's the younger sister, and she probably just was like, I don't know, she was just really cute <laughs> and attentive. <laughs> That's what I'm going to chalk it up to. Okay, fine. Gazelle is a cutesy little sister who remembers things more intensely, who maybe invents details. But then I talk to Nahid a second time, just me and her, and she's giving more color about how Parvana is this optimistic, buoyant woman. Her name, it means butterfly. And this butterfly woman, she actually tried to convince her husband to go on this trip with her. To go up north in Iran is to get away from your cares for a bit, to be with friends, to relax. This was the 1980s, the days of the Iranian revolution, and Parvana's husband had just lost his job. So it's this time of political turmoil, he's upset, and she tries to get him to come with her up north to take his mind off things, but he refuses. That's when Parvana has the dream. Azrael tells her where she'll die, exactly where, 20 miles outside of Tehran. She tells some family members, they caution her not to go, but she goes anyway. In the afternoon, she drives there and with her children. And then they had so much fun, so much fun. And then she calls her husband, please, please come because we had great time and you need to come. And finally, he decides to go too. Then he drives there and a week after, they drive back home and exactly around the same spot that she had dreamed. She dies. Parvana dies. Right around the spot Azrael apparently foretold. A totally dramatic end. But there's this little detail Nahid includes this second time, with Gazelle not in earshot, about how Parvana died. The tire blew up on her side. So the tire did matter. I realize there are bigger issues at play here. A young woman, not yet 40, a mother, she died on a road. The angel Azrael foretold the location. A family is left behind. It's an inexplicable, challenging end to a life. But for me, I heard that detail about the tire and I focused on it. I felt ashamed at how easily I'd assumed Gazelle might have imagined that detail into existence. And I realized that this story about her great aunt, it's kind of about why it can be worthwhile to believe people, even if what they're saying sounds unlikely. Because things are usually more complicated than they seem. So as a classically trained Western scientist, I can say that one of the biggest tools that's used in scientific training is shame for adopting a belief system that isn't scientifically currently validated. So if you're not sure about something as a professor, if someone asks you a question that you can't answer, one, one response is to shame them and another response to, is to say, well, of course it's not, you know, 
psychic powers, ha ha ha, and then the whole class laughs because there's all this tension. That's the voice of Julia Mossbridge. Julia, she's a researcher in the field of premonition, of seeing the future. She focuses a lot on dreams, because dreams are, statistically, the medium in which precognition happens most often. Julia's affiliated with mainstream institutions, the University of California at San Francisco, where she got her master's, Northwestern University, where she holds the title of visiting professor in the psych department after getting her PhD there. But she ventures into places far outside the mainstream. She's the founder of something called TILT, which stands for the Institute of Love and Time, an organization that treats abstract concepts with great seriousness and immediacy. And in her own life, she does the same. She believes certain things that can appear magical at first glance. The most startling, perhaps, and she stresses that this is just her belief, is that the whole purpose of all our lives, the whole reason we eat and make money and get ourselves from place to place during the days, is actually to sleep, to dream. So um, that's a pretty radical view. I, I think the daytime is basically to get yourself ready to go back to sleep. Julia traffics in a certain kind of intuition, of subconscious knowledge. She follows it in her own life. She designs studies around it. She trains people to spot it. She has seen firsthand the effects of learning how to discern this intuition from the chaff, how to live a life according to it, to understand there are grades of it. The more you have experiences that teach you to respect that, the more it breaks away from the habit, the form of intuition that gets a bad name, like habitual intuition, bias, you know, this idea that everything my intuition says is right. Well, that's not true. Your intuition can be full of shit sometimes, right? So, but the more you start to notice what it feels like when it's giving you good information, the more you recognize like that is powerful. She says a future version of herself actually guides her research. And that research, fittingly, has to do with time. A lot of her work involves people she calls precogs. These are people who show a general ability to reach forward in time, to pull insights from the future. She trains them to hone their gifts, but she says we can all be trained, and she works with all sorts of people. She paints this image of an iceberg to explain how we think, with the bulk of the structure lying underwater. So with our processing, too, the bulk goes on in our subconscious— and when we sleep and dream, we move toward this machinery in a way. Your inner laboratory happens to have a time machine in it. Because if you think about it in your dream state, you're paralyzed. And so your body no longer has to worry about the hauling itself around in this physical world. It can haul itself around much more easily with fewer barriers in the non-physical world or in the unconscious world. And in that unconscious world, we are more able to experience time as it truly operates. This is the nature of reality. Um, the nature of reality is that time doesn't work the way we think it does, the way we sort of have been trained that it does, from past to future, continually marching on with no access to the future as you're moving forward. It just doesn't work that way. So if you think of our conscious minds, our waking daily conscious minds, as the tip of the iceberg in terms of um, information processing, 80% of it is underwater. 
80 to 90% of it is underwater. And the water is the line of your conscious awareness. So underneath the water, underneath your conscious awareness is a ton of information processing. Now, given that it doesn't look like time works in the way that our conscious minds understand, it works in some other way. So assume that time works in some other way than is depicted by our conscious experience. Our non-conscious experience or our unconscious experience, our unconscious processing of information can actually operate on time as it is rather than the way it's depicted. Julia, when I told her the story of Parvana, she saw evidence of a natural-born precog. Of course, she was relying on my telling of a woman who I saw as not about to be stopped in what she wanted to do. I could see it in my mind's eye. And she wasn't, and I don't know if this is accurate, um, but my sense was she didn't say, Oh, family, I'm very worried. I'm going to die. And this, this is, and I had that dream. Oh my God, should I go? Blah, blah, blah. Right? That's what a person who had not mastered this experience would do. Oh no, it's all this anxiety. And that's usually actually how people feel with anxiety dreams that aren't precognitive. Often I tell people when they email me about a particular dream, oh no, this is going to happen. I'm like, it's unlikely to be precognitive if that's your attitude about it. Um, oftentimes precognitive dreams are just very factual, like, oh yeah, and then there was a bomb that exploded and then I went over here and I helped this child. Just like informative, but not dramatic. Um, so that's why. That shows a mastery. I think life had trained her. Parvana lived in Iran, a place where the angel of death dropped into dreams, where planes of meaning are accepted as both visible and not. And attitudes toward meaning are different around the world, in various cultures, across families, genders, individuals. Uh, certainly in the U.S., to succeed is to have shown that you have control. Mm. And how much you have control over is a measure of your success. Right? And mm. so to have someone come along and say, 80% of you doesn't, you don't have any control over and you don't even know what's going on. You have no idea what's going on there, by the way. <laughs> That's so funny. That's exactly, you have just like put your finger on the point my friend's mom gave to me as to why she told that story to her daughters. She was like, I want, I think I want them to know that you can't control everything. There's something else going on. It's good to share. It's good to share to see there are things that we can explain, you know. Right now, if I want to explain that dream, it's impossible. I just say it, repeat it, and the consequence of that dream does not apply to everybody. <laughs> People who think they have so much power in this world, like we see around us in the world. They don't know how they are lost in their ignorance mm. that this is not a power. I was seeing a video on, about the universe that the whole solar system in the universe is like a dot. <laughs> And in that dot, all these planets, Earth, and in this, what is going to be the Earth? 
in the solar system. And in that one, who am I? What am I? Why I think I have to so much power? Well, but this is we are small and we're big, right? Because and we are big. We too. are speaking about Parvana now. How many years uh-huh. later, you and I are sitting? Uh-huh. So many people will hear the story. That's amazing too, right? Parvana, she lived at a time when much was out of one's control. The Iranian revolution stripped people of their land, their homes. It created divides along ideological lines. Families like gazelles broke down a bit as some members fled to America. Nahid, she kept telling me about this one dream she had at the time she and her husband were awaiting a visa to come to America. Gazelle wasn't born yet, only Solmaz. So Nahid and her husband Sena traveled to Turkey to visit the embassy. We came for a visa and to U.S. embassy in uh, Turkey, and they gave me visa quickly for me and uh, Solmaz, and they didn't give it to Sena. And if was not happening, we couldn't come, you know, and it was hard. And that night. I saw, I kind of a little bit uh, bending toward religion, but not much, you know, because I was not practicing, but I had some belief that God is going to help us. God, I believe in God, uh, absolutely. But that time I saw in my dream that in a huge crowd, and he said just uh, some uh, voice, told me, just say, Ya Hussein, and go. Your, wo- your way is open. And, and I just looking through the crowd, how am I going to go through? And the next day, Sina was going to get his visa for, uh, the, for the second time to embassy. And our hotel was across the embassy, and I said, Sina, when you come out of the embassy, don't wait to come up. Just uh, wave to me that if you get your visa. And I was so um, excited with my dream. And then when he came out of the embassy, he looked up, and I was behind the window waiting for him. He looked up and waved his hand, and he got his visa. And that was another dream that really surprised me, yeah. Coming up, Parvana travels through time. Hi, my name is Kay Songa. And I'm a mindfulness and meditation instructor at Headspace. And today I want to talk to you about stress, sleep, and the concept of the ever-present blue sky. The blue sky represents the innate calm and ease that is always there within us, but is often blocked out by our emotions, frenzied thoughts, or stress, which is represented by the clouds. It's not until we're able to clear out the clouds that we will be able to see and feel the beautiful blue sky again. And we have to trust and know that the blue sky is always there, even if we can't see it right now. The practice is to pause and get back in touch with it, knowing that it's always there. You can learn more about the blue sky in my basics course, 
where I guide you through the foundations of mindfulness and meditation and how it can help manage stress, improve sleep, and overall well-being. Allow yourself to head to the App Store and download the Headspace app today. Hope to see you there. She didn't like to fail in her life. She was a fighter. If this is the problem, I'm going to try something else, something else. And she was like that, you know. Nahid has one theory about why Parvana went on that road trip, even despite the dream that suggested she would die while on it. It has to do with how people felt during the revolution, with Parvana's desire to lift the spirits of people around her, to change the tone of life. Maybe if you are religious and you believe in this stuff, you might just cancel the trip and say, I don't feel good. Maybe um, anybody else. But she wanted to uh, prove that these are uh, not real. She wanted to come back, say, see, I went and nothing happened. Parvana had been of great support to Nahid during those years. She was just 12 years older than me. I was very depressed after revolution with all the assassination and all that. And she was always coming to tell me that be positive, try to keep your soul happy, strong and all that. And so then she has this dream and she tells her relatives in that atmosphere of fear, of religiosity. They told her uh, it's better not to go right now. They told her that it's better not to go and maybe some other time. But she laughs. She's scared inside herself. If she wasn't scared, she wouldn't repeat the dream and tell everyone that I don't care. She want to prove something that I don't care. If we want to emphasize to that kind of thought, We cannot live our life. Gazelle, she was born in America after her parents got their visas. After Nahid's dream predicted they would, she has never been to Iran. She talks longingly about it. So it made sense to me that she'd remembered this dream in a way her sister Solmaz hadn't. Solmaz was born in Iran. But for Gazelle, the dream itself is maybe a little like a time machine, a vehicle that takes her to a place she longs to go, but that only exists in her mind. It's very vivid in its imagery, and it's vivid in my imagining of Iran, which is always something that just exists in my mind, that I have no sense of what it actually looks like, aside from photos and movies and all of that. But I have a very vivid like, image in my mind of her driving on the road and the tire coming off and her falling out and of her telling the story to people like around her. So I, I guess it's more to me like a thing that I felt, I, I don't know, like it felt connecting in a way, I guess, to my family in a way that I've never known them. It's like one of many images of like, life in Iran that feels distant and like a dream to me as well, right? It's like this world I've never existed in. Oh, I I guess like one piece of it is like, uh, 
is like going north, going Shamal is as they call the north. Um, like my parents would always talk about that. Like it was like this place that were like, and like I had see photos of them, you know, in like photo albums where they'd be like, oh, we were here on this trip. And they always look so happy, you know, like it's like this time that is before they came to America, before I existed, before a lot of it, before my sister did as well, where I just, I think of that as like, that's when they were like at their most happy, maybe. I don't know. Maybe I'm projecting that, but like I, they look carefree and young, you know? I've heard Gazelle's stories of her childhood in America under the watch of parents who'd fled their home at a time of distress. Stories of fear, even in their new home of California. Gazelle, she can be anxious about a lot of things. It's a joke among those who love her. Even when she sleeps, she's anxious. She talks, she yells, lying there asleep in bed. She seems scared of things that might happen. Julia believes that precognition can heal people if we respect it. People who've undergone childhood trauma, for instance, have been shown to exhibit trouble developing positive future visions of themselves. But if they can learn to connect with some wise future self, they can possibly change the course of their life. Same if they connect to their child self, if they move back in time. So she works with people on making this happen. You're just developing a relationship with what is already there. But instead of ignoring it, you're treating these parts of yourself like they're people. Like they're really there, right? And what you find, especially as you first work with the past and all the things that you might regret or that were difficult, um, is that you begin to learn how to love yourself if you make it a practice. And then usually what happens after that is people start being able to receive the love from their future self. So healing can move across time within a single life, but then there's the chance that it could move across families too. Julia told me about an old endemic conception of time that has to do with networks of people. I'm not an anthropologist, so I know that I will get this wrong, but I'm going to try. <laughs> The Iroquois who are in the northeastern United States and um, southeastern Canada, which has become, a, I think, a confederation of five or six tribes now. But um, the Iroquois are the seventh generation people, the people who talk about uh, making sure you make decisions for seven generations from now. But there are also people who talk about um, the long body so the long body, they, they live in long, they used to live in long houses where it's actual long houses where multiple families and multiple generations would live. And so there's this feeling of extension from the personal self to include the long body that they talk about. And in, in my understanding of it is it includes um, the tools that you use on a daily basis. Like for me, my long body would include my cell phone, right? Um, as well as the people who are very close to you. They're part of your long body, your home, your car, your family, your, your close friends. Those are part of your long body. And a long body in time is like the seventh generation idea, right? So my ancestors, my children, or 
you know, my spirit, if you want to call it that, before I was born, my spirit after I was born. Um, so that feels much more reflective of this sort of eternality that, to me, when you get in touch with that eternality or that sense of inviolable sense of that there's an essence of who you are that just can't be violated, um, that is what engenders hope on a deep level. This idea of the long body, I see it in Gazelle, in how her memory seems to stretch back to Iran, though she's never actually set foot there. I see it in my life, too. I mean, my mom changes in my dreams as I change. Sometimes I think it's my view of her that's changing, but sometimes I believe that what affects me translates in a reverse domino fashion to her. This idea that our behavior affects future generations, it's invoked often enough in talk of climate change, of social justice. Our actions change the future. Perhaps they change the past, too. Long bodies go both ways. Julia believes precogs could change the world, given the chance, could help stem climate change, turn the direction of political realities. So her theory as to the meaning of Parvana's dream is pretty grand, that it serves as a lesson to the public about precognition that might create real change. The story, after all, is reverberating right now, like information accessed in a dream. Who knows where it will go? It's just like being a whale. Right? When I don't know, that, that leap probably was a little large. No, tell me, but explain <laughs> how. Well, you know, whales are always in the water, so they're always connected physically in some kind of, some kind of very obvious way that they have to move around with these other whales. But also, they're, they can go to deep channels underwater where the way the temperature gradients work. Um, their sounds can carry for thousands of miles so they can communicate. It's like, if you want to go down to that temperature gradient and send a message, you know, to whales thousands of miles away, you can. And I feel like that's what dreaming is. If anyone who goes down to that level can hear, right? So there's receiving and there's transmitting and we all take turns. And so collectively, we're receiving and transmitting from a source. So Parvana used this sonar to pick up on something. And now here we are, years and miles away, telling her story. Gazelle, I can imagine her right now, listening to this episode and maybe not really enjoying the leaps required to draw meaning from a dream that belongs to a woman who's no longer with us, a dream that's been passed down and morphed through the telling of it. She's not exactly interested in wild theories, though she has her private sense of the world. But... I do think there's something to her family, to their way of being, that points to a special relationship with time and space. And even if she wouldn't say it outright, Gazelle seems to think so too. I don't know, like sometimes like I'll hear my mom's voice in my ear like very um, clearly, like it's like she says my name and it's like she's right next to me or something. And like, and then, like, like I don't know, that will have happened, and then I'll talk to her on the phone, and she'll talk about how deeply, she, how much she was thinking about me that day. or she, So, you know, like, little things like that I associate with my mom um, that feel mysterious. I wonder, 
Maybe as Parvana told all those family members, she would go on that trip. She whispered in Gazelle's ear too. This member of her long body told her never to be afraid of risk of death itself. Gazelle's mom seems able to talk to her without being near. Like when you're in a subway and someone whispers across the track and the bend in the ceiling leads the voice directly to your ears. If Nahid, why not Parvana? They're related after all. One thing I uh, feel about it, that our dreams is a traveler, our soul to back and future. Sometimes I think that way. Because why I see myself in a different places that I never remember to live like that. And sometimes I have a dream that uh, goes through my uh, past. You know, I see myself, the houses I used to live and uh, people I used to, you know, leave that time, but now they're gone. This is my soul is traveling during my dream. That's another life that we're, that, that always uh, occupy my mind that, why? And then there's me. At one point in that call with Nahid and Gazelle, I mentioned my mother. I always do when the big questions come up. I just can't help myself. I apologize later in a text to Gazelle. Tell her I didn't mean to always mention my mom. Death, loss, the past, myself. But it's funny. When I slipped in that way, Nahid's eyes softened. She told me she often thinks of my mom and that she's so sorry that she's not here with me on this earth, that she knows what it is to lose a mom. She told me of a dream she had of her own mom after she died and how obvious it was that that was her actual mom there, alive in the dream. And she looked at me in that moment with what felt like real love, a motherly love. And I suppose I felt a whisper along space and time right then. A sense of my mom. A reminder that we're all connected. Everyone is here, whether you can see them or not. And that there are so many things we can't easily see. Hibernation is brought to you by Headspace Studios in partnership with Spoke Media. If you're enjoying the show, please rate, review, and follow us in Apple Podcasts. It helps people find the show. Our show is written and hosted by me, Malika Rao. We're produced by senior producer James Kim, with help from myself, Erica Huang, Brigham Mosley, Damira Pierre, and research by Hannah Ray Montgomery. Our coordinating producer is Sharita Lynn Solis, with additional production help from Cody Hoffmachel, Kelly Kolf, Evan Arnett, and Will Short. Original music and sound design by Erica Huang, with engineering by Chris Mann and ABF Creative. Additional music from Universal Production Music. Our spoke executive producers are Keisha TK Dutess with Keith Reynolds and Aliyah Tavakolian. Our headspace executive producers are Leah Sutherland with Morgan Seltzer and Sam Rogaway. Special thanks to the folks you heard from today. Gazelle, Solmaz, and Nahid Imami, and Julia Mosbridge. 